Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. It has been a while since we strolled through Times Square. Have you missed it? Not one bit. (laughs) Can I tell you what I find funny? Hmm. I find it funny that there are still streetlights here in Times Square. I mean, there are so many video boards and ads, and they are so bright that they light up the entire area. There's no need for streetlights at all. I can see that. I know I say that I'm not a fan of the huge crowds and congestion, and to be clear, I'm not. But there is one thing I don't like more than that. What's that? I miss not being able to see the stars. Me too. I mean, how are we supposed to navigate our way to Neverland when not only can we not find the second star to the right, we can't find any of the stars? I mean, that's taking it to the extreme, but I see your point. Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the wondrous show, Finding Neverland. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. And welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We could sail away tonight on a sea of pure moonlight. We can navigate the stars to bring us back home. Every wish is in our command. We will find ourselves in Never Neverland. And on today's episode, we plan to take you there with us as we delve into the show Finding Neverland. The phantasmal show sailed onto Broadway with its band of familiar characters and heartbreaking story, which it continued to share with audiences and help them believe once again. But before we can learn how to fly, we must first lay the groundwork. On February 6th, 2011, La Jolla Playhouse, California, announced that they would produce a new staged musical based on the film with book by Alan Nee, score by Scott Frankel and Michael Corey, and directed and choreographed by Rob Ashford. A planned production at La Jolla Playhouse was not held. A developmental reading was held in New York on March 31st, 2011. The adaptation had its world premiere on September 22nd, 2012 at Curve in Leicester. On September 4th, 2013, it was announced that producers planned on opening a revised version of the musical at the American Repertory Theater, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in 2014. The revised musical had a new creative team, with Diane Paulus as the director, a new book by James Graham, 
and 22 songs by Gary Barlow and Elliot Kennedy, with a few songs from the original composers. A private reading was held in September of 2013. On February 27, 2014, a further developmental workshop was announced for March of that year. The revised production ran at the ART from the 23rd of July, 2014 to the 28th of September, 2014. Jennifer Hudson debuted the song Neverland from the musical at the 68th Tony Awards on June 8th, 2014. This is the perfect time to introduce our design team. Book, James Graham. Music and lyrics by Gary Barlow and Elliot Kennedy. Based on the motion picture by David McGee. Based on the play by Alan Nee. Director, Diane Paulus. Choreographer, Mia Michaels. Scenic design by Scott Pask. Costume design by Sirdia Larleb. Lighting design by Kenneth Posner, projection design by John Driscoll, sound design by Jonathan Deans, and hair and makeup design by Richard Mobby. The show would arrive at the Lunt Fontaine Theater on April 15, 2015, where it would play 565 Adventures, taking flight one last time on August 21st, 2016. The show would go on to have a London production as well as a national tour. So let us see what is possible if we just believe. tale about Peter Pan and description of life of the Scottish writer J.M. Barrie, who created this story, based on his surroundings and acquaintances. Finding Neverland is based on the true events that led J.M. Barrie to create Peter Pan, or the boy who wouldn't grow up, and sings to the child in all our hearts. It's 1904, and successful London playwright J.M. Barrie has a serious case of writer's block. While he's working on a new play, he recognizes that there is nothing original about it and the characters and plot are simply recycled from plays he's already written. Despondent at the potential end of his career, Barry meets a lovely and caring widow, Sylvia Llewellyn Davies, and her four sons, George, Peter, Jack, and Michael, in Kensington Park. They embark on adventures of imagination together, all except Peter, unwilling to play and still reeling from his father's death. Barry's wife is against such a pastime, and so is Sylvia's mother, a woman of strict views who wants to control everything in the life of her daughter. Both women disapprove of the relationships Barry and the boys are developing. As Barry helps Peter learn to play again, his writer's block gives way to new art form, children's theater. But the adults are skeptical and unsupportive. Who will pay to see a play about children? Who will play these characters? After some time, Sylvia begins to wither from an unknown illness, and Barry's wife leaves him, protesting his affair on the side. Barry, at the same time, develops the basis for his novel, calling it Peter Pan, after one of the boys of Sylvia, Peter, 
who does not want to grow up and to whom he has a strong attachment. The surname Pan he could take based on the following meaning of the word, to give it hot and strong, or from other word, pun. The director of the play, Mr. Froen, extremely reluctantly takes it into production because he does not believe that the rich theatergoers will attend it. At the first exhibition, Barry invites children from orphanages to sit in the audience and infect surrounding people with their delight and simply melt their hearts so the play can become terribly successful. Peter attended the play and realized that it was made based on the life of his family. Barry decided to make a personal spectacle to his beloved Sylvia, who cannot visit in the theater because of being terminally ill and is too weak to walk. He brought the actors, makeup, and costumes to her house, and in the final stage, her children helped her to enter into another room under the guise that it was a Neverland. In the next scene, the viewer sees the funeral of Sylvia after her death. The statement of her last will contained an indication for Barry to take care of her children as they agreed before. Peter is sitting on a bench reading a script of Peter Pan in the same place where they had met with Barry for the first time. Barry comforts Peter, exhorting to him that life goes on. The, the end. end. discuss the parts that we liked and the parts that maybe could use a little bit of work with this show i really like this show i mean i already love the film and i just love the story that's being told i mean i'm also like a, a, a sucker for peter pan yeah i was like you're a huge peter pan fan i am you know i, I we have one of the original copies of peter pan and wendy the books on our bookshelf it is one of my favorite stories, you know, children's stories. So I knew I'd love the film. And with the show, as long as they stuck to that story, I knew I was going to like it. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, we, we knew this was going to be an, a win. Yeah. A win, yeah. So I think as far as like a movie to musical, I thought this was very successful. I really liked it. I liked that the music added to the story. It didn't subtract. It didn't, you know, it didn't distract from the story, I guess. Right, I completely agree with that. This was one of the few musicals that up until I discovered my soul, you know, and that I had a soul. So I guess I discovered this during the pandemic. You know, I cried at this. I was not a real crier at shows. And I maybe this is the show that like became the gateway to that. But I did. I, uh, the scene where they're, they're putting on the play at the Llewellyn's house. Oh my gosh, I'm just, I was just a mess, hot mess. I also thought that the show was just really creative and clever. And it had some wonderful messages within there. You know, one of the things I loved were things like, you know, we, as the actors, we've forgotten the word of play. It's, we're putting on a play so we should be playing. And I love that. I still even use that today. 
or just invoking the child in all of us. Don't forget to use your imagination. Don't grow up too fast, you know? These kind of mindsets. I was like, why does, why is it that when we do grow up, the world loses that whimsy? Why do we let that happen? Why can't we be both? Why can't we be adults, but still view the world with that fantastic, Childlike gaze. Yeah. Why, why can't it be both? Because maybe if we did look at the world that way, we could make the world a better place. You know, this was truly a work of art come to life. A play telling the story of a play, which sounds kind of redundant, but it had Diana Paulus's fingerprints and signatures all over this thing. Like, all over it. But we're going to talk more about that when we get to the directing. Which probably makes this... The best time to start talking about our little boxes. Yes. What a good transition. Two points for me. Now, let's start with set. I thought the set was really awesome. The set was a, a fun, like, play set. Yes. Like, it, it gave everything we needed to to give us that realism of locking into the world, yet still allowed us to feel very makeshift and put together by children. Right. I love that the center of the set pieces were something simple, but what really amped it up were the details added to most of these simple items. So, for example, you know, when they were at the dinner table, right? Uh, the table was so simple. What was fancy about it were all the little different dishes that were added to it. So it was like all the, the set dressing, the props that made it more elaborate. But the table was just simple. Or... When they were in the park, the bench, very simple. But then you had these beautiful pictures projected on the back. Or, uh, or when they're using the cart, the kids using the cart before they put the play on. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, Tevye's calling. He wants his cart back. It's very simple. But they start pulling out these fun things that make that just that much more magical. They didn't rely on these elaborate set pieces, giant panel walls. They weren't like terribly ornate and, you know, detailed. It was very, like, it gave us everything we needed to get the idea of the picture, but let us fill in the gap where we needed to. Right. The enormous projected pictures and images on the back of the wall were incredible to help make each scene like a beautiful portrait in and of itself. That was like one of the cool things. It felt like we were walking through an exhibit in each scene and we got to see that moment which i think i want to touch more on but it's a directing choice by diana paulus using a style of theater to help communicate the story i also love the red balloons in general during believe i thought it was so cute i did you know something about a balloon I loved the table in the pub scene like all the different square tables and how they were incorporated in the number because you literally, it's, I mean, it's obviously, it started tough like they're drinking, right? But as, as Kelsey Grammer, who was playing the role of Captain Hook, or in that moment, Mr. Froham, the director, kind of ignites the cast and reminds them why we do what we do. It's a play. We're playing, right? Mm-hmm. You start to see them start to play with these square tables, and they almost become pieces of the board games that they're like, the, these nursery rhymes that they're saying, they start and they all just start to play on them, and they're literal like game pieces, and it was just so much fun. It was brilliantly choreographed, and truthfully, I don't remember seeing something fun or necessarily complex like that until your show, something like it hot with the chase scene, 
where we had that the choreographed doors and everything. I, I'm trying to quickly rack my brain about another show where they've done something fun like that, and I can't really come up with one. Yeah, I don't really. I don't think it's something that's used very often on Broadway. They were just having so much fun, and it was those simple set pieces that allowed them to just. It was like the kid. It was the kids' table. They were all returning back to the kids' table. I obviously love the pirate ship and the way it was created at the end of Act One. Oh, oh my gosh, where he's on the bench, like feeling bad for himself, and here comes Kelsey Grammer or or whoever may be playing that role later down the road as Captain Hook, and it's almost like the alter ego, which I love mm-hmm. of J M Barry. That that's the thing I love is J M Barry embodies both Peter Pan. And Captain Hook. They're oh. like his two... Like they're the angel and devil on his shoulder. Exactly. He's, he, on one side, he has adulthood, and on the other, he has his inner child. child. Yes, yes. And that's what I love about the way that this... I mean, and we'll dive more to, on this in direction, but the way that this was depicted was all of these fantasies came to life right in front of him. And yes. you could tell it was him creating the world, making it more whimsical, and actively choosing whimsy in his life. As yes. well as his imagination. We got to see the world also through his eyes. Mm-hmm. And so I love when he's having this dark moment. His wife has just left him. He doesn't know about this play and all this. So he's really in this dark and desperate moment. And that's where we meet James Hook. Captain James Hook. J.M. Mm-hmm. Barry. James Barry. Anyway, and we and we see, you know, he kind of preys on this and says maybe it's almost like the Star Wars thing, you know, yes, let the hate grow, you know. And they turn this bench into a pirate ship. All of a sudden we see these giant I can't think of the word, but like the ropes, ropes and that. Well, there's a specific term for them, but the ropes come up and the sails and with the projections they're throwing these waves with the music. It was truly cinematic in that moment. Right. Honestly, this felt like a good hearkening back to Peter and the Starcatcher, too. A little bit because I mean they were It was imaginary yet Yes, yet yes, yes. You could like actualize it. But it was like if if we took Peter and the Starcatcher and injected it with millions of dollars and really intentionally upped that quality where they they were specifically going for that lower budget feel, if that makes right. sense. Right. So it's it's kind of the two different spectrums of the same concept. But it it was the first time for me in a musical a, a musical based off of a movie that it felt cinematic that I, f- I started to feel the lines blur just a little where because of the technology and everything, you know, there wasn't such a hard wall between what a musical was and what a movie was for the first time with the advent of projections and advanced lighting. I was seeing a moment that could have been from a film, mm-hmm. but it was live. It was great. And then finally for set, I want to talk about, for me, what was probably the most beautiful moment of the show and this is where like i the game was lost i lost it i i was a blubbering mess when i saw it in salt lake with your mom i mean i was just oh i was just a hot mess and it was when sylvia passes in the end and they're you know they're putting the play on it's beautiful and she finally comes down because she hasn't been able to walk like she has to be helped in to see the show but then she walks around with Peter Pan to go to the window and she's right there center stage and she's she sings about 
swirling stars and something, da-da-da-da-da. And all of a sudden, as she's getting ready to pass, fans on the in the stage pop up and they start to blow and they blow glitter. Mm-hmm. And it and and normally like you know, you blow glitter and it's like, ooh, but this glitter, the way that it was designed, it swirled in like a tornado around her. It was And the, so... it started swirling as the rest of the set just disappeared. And, and she it was walks just... out into the window with Peter and that's her and that is the visual of her passing. And, and then it was well, and then you have this beautiful moment that's created where she's walked through the window, the glitter swirling, the set disappears, and it's just her and this wind tunnel and then, and of then, glitter. And then she leaves, and then the wind tunnel shuts off, and the glitter just falls, and well, she is gone. And before we get there, so she's in this big, giant wind, wind tunnel of glitter, and her scarf, or her shawl, oh, comes right, 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 right. and goes up into the air... And you're just watching it, and the next thing you know, everything's falling and she's not there. Right, and so we're left with the glitter on the ground and the shawl on the ground. I mean, I'm getting all teary-eyed just thinking about it. It's just this beautiful moment, and I was so impressed that they were able to create this swirling glitter and keep it contained was the thing. It it wasn't projected as a thing. No, it was like some sort of like... Like tissue paper, like holographic tissue paper, something. It was brilliant. It yeah. was brilliant. So, moving on to the costumes. They right. were very beautiful and time appropriate, I would say. Right. Well, and on that same level that we talked about the sets, how we kind of had this melding, there's this beautiful moment just before we get to the pirate ship scene where Sylvia's mother is morphing into a crocodile. With a clock. Right. And she's riding on this set piece that is just like a little lamp pole. But you see her costume like this, you know, early 1900s, turn of the century costume that is morphing into a look of an alligator. And it er, it it is so beautiful. And she's, you're like, oh my God, she's, she's the ticking time, you know, she's the ticking time bomb that is the alligator in the story that's chomping at his heels. Right, 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 right. She she represents, she's rushing everyone to grow up. She's time marching forward. And I'm glad you brought that up because you there is that moment, I can't think of the song, but where it's like in limbo. And we mm-hmm. do get to see the different characters who maybe inspired J.M. Barry to put to take those people in his life and put them in the story. I believe her line is, save your crocodile tears. Yeah. And, oh, it's so great. I love the Peter Pan cost, character costumes. The way that they did those. Which ones? The, the ones all for, of them. Well, the ones for the actors? Yes, yes. Well, you, so there were the ones for the actors in the rehearsal, which were just ridiculous in the best way. It was totally, you know. It was historically accurate for the time period in which they were portraying as far as costumes go. It was Sam and June put up the show in the barn costumes, absolutely. But, but then, then when they did it, the the presentation at the Llewellyn House, it was these beautiful, I mean, Broadway standard costumes. And what I loved is we talked about it, that mixture of seeing what's real and then also seeing what's what JM saw. Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's really important to know that there's the 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 real actors 
that are acting, that are dressed up in the Peter Pan garb, and that's the same stuff that you see portrayed in every single movie everywhere. Like, it's even in Hook, where, you know, it's just that simple, like, plain clothes actors, but then to also have them transform into these real-life, full-scale, ornate costumes. The real mermaid looks. Yes, that comes in later when they perform at the... At the Llewellyn Davies house. To have Hook and and to see Mr. Fromm be playing Hook, but it wasn't Mr. Fromm, is a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's. I didn't notice it at the time, but now in hindsight, I'm like, what a beautiful moment of. And, and, and we don't know. Was this his imagination making it more, more lively, more detailed, or was this the final product? Because we do never get to see the final product. Right, we only get to see like glimpses of it in Getting rehearsal. Getting ready, something then, about this night. I can't, dun, dun, dun. Well, and we we kind of get the illusion that J.M. Barry is standing outside of the theater, right. listening to the show. Right, he gets it, but we, and like the movie. The movie, you get to see, see the them, show but a like, bit, but you don't get to see the the musical until. Mm-hmm. So, and oh, it was just amazing. The, the 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 costumes, in my opinion, were in no way cartoony. Which was great. They truly felt like the real thing. That's one thing I appreciated. In all of this, the show stayed away from caricatures. We didn't have Disney cartoons. We didn't have these over-exaggerated things. When we had those moments of make-believe characters coming through, like you would mention Sylvia's mother, who we mentioned kind of turns into a crocodile, we see the connection of why she's being associated with the crocodile or right. why. And what, I, what I love is it's brilliant because it's not like she's like sprouting a tail or anything. It's like her bustle of her dress looks like it could Scaly. be an alligator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it, that's how we kind of get with like Hook's costume and Peter Pan's costume where they're the classic silhouettes, but it's like the textures feel real like it's like oh peter pan yes. made his costume out of leaves and the textures look like leaves and it looks like he's sewn it himself exactly. and then you have elaborate pirate costumes that are you know oh yes this is what a rich person would have stolen you know or this would have been stolen by a pirate you know or created it it's hard to explain because it's not they had elements of what ultimately would be that character embodied in the regular costume whether that be a texture or a shape or a color in in the real world they had some element of that there right so that you could associate that more than just being like oh i'm smee well no what makes you smee oh you were in the striped sweater when we were rehearsing Mm -hmm. and now that sweater has evolved into a much bigger deal right which i think is also such a beautiful metaphor as to this whole story because all it takes is a nugget of something happening to spiral and snowball and quickly become a caricature. Yes. You know, and characters and stories and fairy tales and legends all started with something real that happened. Yes. That as it gets passed on and develops, it can dive deeper into the fantasy. Yes. And I think this costume design is the epitome of what that journey looks like. Yes. I also love that the colors, prime, you know, outside of all this that we've been talking about, but, you know, the, the main characters, we'll say, leaned into paler and brighter hues, hugging those pinks and tans and browns and whites a little more, which made things feel 
a little more childlike. You you don't tend to see children in like dark red outfits or deep blues or deep greens. You know, they are in light blues or whites or tans, like I Khakis. said. Yeah. And so we saw the boys and Sylvia and Jay and Barry. All of these, really mainly them, were in these lighter hues and I'll say their base costume, where the surrounding characters, like JM's wife, was in that deep red dress, mm-hmm. or Sylvia's mother was in that deep blue dress. So the supporting characters, if you will, were in darker costumes, where essentially the children mm-hmm. were in these lighter outfits. And I was just like, that's fun. You, you, I don't know, something about lighter costumes. You just have fun, mm-hmm. you know? The last thing I, at least I want to mention regarding costumes was the hair. We can't, we can't talk about a show and not talk about hair. And I felt like it was of the time, but also had a modern twist to it. Now, this shows you my knowledge about it. I, I, I think this mainly when the hair was down. And the person I think of most with this is Sylvia. Mm-hmm. I just... It, to me, in everything I've seen of that time period, all the women would have their hair really well done up and, and tightly done up. You know, not not like tightened balls or anything, but, you know, it would be done up. It would be up. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have hair falling out of place where I felt like Sylvia was a little bit more... Her hair was very down. It was kind of curly here and there. Now, granted, she was ill, but... I liked the choice because of the shape it gave her face. It was a much softer look to her. Where, again, with Sylvia's mother, we had a, it gave the character, the way her hair was done up, and with the hat and everything, it gave much more angular looks to it. But what I appreciate is when we got to the end, you could see a little bit more of a softness with the final look. There was a little more relaxing in the hair. Right. Well, and I think the most important thing to note about the hair is the hair, the hair, the silhouette, historically accurate. The difference with Sylvia is her hair is down more like she's a a schoolgirl rather than up like someone who is the mother of three children, three, four children. Okay. Okay. See, that makes more sense because I was like, is this a modern look or that makes more sense? Okay. Yeah. It's that she is, is she's, she looks young. She looks... Way well, too she's young. young at heart. Exactly. And that's again the 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 subtlety in the design and direction to be like, let's pay attention to those who have not lost their inner child. Yeah, I love that. I want to move on to lights because I love the lighting of the show. I loved the use of floor lights. It really helped add the feeling of a play or a vaudeville show especially in the numbers like the dining room number or the pub scene number or when they were rehearsing. We just had these little lights that were at the foot of the stage that just added that extra oomph. I also love the brilliant use of shadows in the show to create whimsy as well as mystery. Now, obviously, obviously with Peter Pan, there's a huge precedent and association with Shadows, right? That's how Peter Pan kind of we it, we learn of his intro to Wendy is, is you know he lost his shadow, but the the particular number I'm thinking of is when Sylvia and JM sing for the first time Neverland, mm-hmm. and they're on the stage and there's the ghost light, 
But like the way it's lit, it's like the only light on stage really is like the ghost light. And you have these beautiful, large looming shadows from the two as they move. And it's, it's beautiful. Well, and the other thing that you really see a lot of is just this idea of being able to see the stars in the sky, especially when it's dark. Like, I love, if you look at any photos, you just see these, you see this, I don't even know how to describe it because it's not an ombre or a wash, but it feels like a night sky that has different lights and darks. And I think that that's kind of the same feeling that the show gives is it gives those lights and darks that gives that, that whimsy of finding the second start of the yes yes well that that was all that was i feel like it was always there to drive your eye that's what i meant earlier about the pictures and everything there was no part of the stage that was left to not be looked at it wasn't just like we have to look right at the stage of the characters on there there was thought put in from the floor to the ceiling to like to the proscenium of it what does that whole thing need to look like so even though we're working on a stage and they're singing this beautiful love bell. What if we put stars up above because there's Neverland up there, you know? Yeah. And that's just the attention to detail. The color palette just allowed us to recognize that we were existing in the real world, but also that the story and the show as a whole was part of make-believe. And I mean, they did that with the brilliant use of blues and teals and the, the great use of shadows and then white lights, you know? Just the way that they incorporated all of those, we knew when we were when it was real and when it was make-believe, up until... What was great is it was up until we get to the moment of, of the play being put on. Mm-hmm. After the number, something about this night, that's where the lighting... You, you, you're not sure. And of course, that leads to the the Neverland reprise, the, the play being put on for Sylvia and, and me just being destroyed. Right. So I, I think we have tiptoed around this next part long enough. We have to talk about the direction. We have to. First of all, I am a huge fan of Diane Paulus. And this show is no exception to her brilliance. We have known her from such great shows as Pippin, Hair, she would go on to do other great shows like 1776. She did Porgy and Bess. She did Jagged Little Pill. She did Waitress. I mean, anything she touches, I'm like, great, I'll go. This show is no exception. She utilized other methods besides songs and words to tell the story, including props like the balloons and skates and glitter as well as shadows, which we've talked about. And this is the one I really am interested to talk about, which is tableaus. Yes. So that to, that is where, when you were talking about the stars up above and everything like that, to me, every scene, you needed to look for the tableau that was trying to be presented overall. There was a moment that, that, that was overall trying to be presented. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it's very smart. It's hearkening back to the early days of the American theater, of the American musical with the Ziegfeld Follies, where they would have these great dancers and they'd have these couple comedians and that. Fanny Bryce, this is how she got her start. And then it would all end with the Tableau Vivant. Mm-hmm. This beautiful artistic piece with scantily clad women, but it was very artistic. And, and it was a tableau, it was a frozen piece. And 
you would get to enjoy it. Then the curtain would come down, and then another one would appear, and yada, yada, yada. It's basically just like looking at different pictures, but you wouldn't have to move. And to me, the show, every scene, and especially every musical number, there was a moment that there was supposed to be a tableau in it. I mean, if I was f- photographing the show for, like, you know, the program or something, I couldn't have asked for an easier job. Oh, yeah, there are so many beautiful buttons. In moments in this as well. I mean, that that's the thing is when you look at pictures from the show, yeah, those are the tableaus. You know, J.M. Barry standing on the bench with Hook right behind him and the wave crashing and he's looking and he's singing stronger. Or Sylvia and J.M. right by the ghost light holding hands and looking up, singing about Neverland. I mean, these are the moments we were supposed to register but the beauty of it is they didn't stop, obviously. It kept yeah. moving. But in your in your mind, you were registering that this was a giant picture. And that all of these elements were working together to communicate this story. This snapshot in the moment. And one of the best things about directing in that kind of a style is even thinking back as an audience member, I can see each feeling each tableau and what feeling I was supposed to get out of it yes happened like yes. in my mind I can see it and I remember exactly what that tableau was yes 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 yes, yes. exactly exactly and that's that's one of the things that made the show so memorable right because it makes a lasting connection to it's it's like a photograph that's just stamped on your head you know and that that is the signature I feel like of Diane Paul's she she has that ability to do that. She uses creative ways of storytelling beyond just traditional song and dance. I, we've talked about this a lot. I love the ability, like her ability to intersect the two worlds of real and fantasy all at the same time. We've discussed this at length. And I think that you brought it up really well where you said there was a, you know, it, we got to see the play in the real world, you know, at, like we were regularly watching. But then we were also able to see it through JM's eyes. Mm-hmm. And I think Diane did a great job of not slapping us in the face and also not splitting the show into two parts where, you know, we had to we had to live in the both worlds. You know, almost like the cabaret where we were telling the story here, but then we had to step in limbo and then we had these different numbers. Right. It all got to live in in the same plane, all at the same time. Exactly. And it just, by by switching a little bit of costume, a little bit of light, a little bit of manners, what have you, now the world's JM's eyes. And again, the further we got in, the more they both started to blend together, that by the end you start to wonder what's real and what's make-believe, which I, think I love that. Yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway from this story. I love her ability to make a show feel larger than life without making it feel gigantic or huge for the stage. She has a way of just hitting the right sweet spot so that you know you're seeing something that you won't anywhere else. If that makes sense. Yeah. This show, as we've been describing it, I know that it sounds like a behemoth. Very just overwhelmingly enormous. But it wasn't. And I I would not say this was an intimate show by any means. No. But it didn't feel... Like, wicked huge, you know? Or even your show huge. Like, your show feels enormous. Well, and that's the thing about about Finding Neverland is it can take place on a smaller scale. 
And it's because of the brilliance of Diane Paulus that she was able to elevate it to a Broadway level. Yes. And I think that really that ability is kind of what's being lost in a lot of theater these days is what is the difference between a Broadway level something and a non-Broadway level something. Well, and just also, bigger doesn't mean better. Correct. It has to do with the artistry. Well, just at the end of the day, what are you trying to do? Just because you had more flash bang pizzazz doesn't mean that the show will automatically get better. If that flashbang pizzazz enhances what you're doing, then absolutely. But the KISS rule is really great in any facet of life. Just keep it simple, only add what you need to, and go from there. And I think this show was perfect at that. Yeah. The last two things I want to touch on, I want to first touch on music. Lots of beautiful music. I mean, beautiful music. And again, almost a cinematic score. Though it wasn't as present as we would later hear in other future musicals from movies. But there were definitely moments that were cinematically orchestrated if the, or underscored, if that makes sense. Kind of. There, what I mean by that is in the past when you've seen musicals, right? Mm-hmm. You usually hear music when a song is happening or about to happen or for scene transitions. Yes. Where in this show, there were scenes that had underscoring. And they may not have a song, it may not have a transition, it might just be underscoring. And therein lies where we started to have more of that film fill. Now, I'm not saying that there's, you know, any musical doesn't have that. I mean, Wicked kind of has that. Right, I mean, Music Man had that. But, the... This was for me like the first major major picture to a musical that had a lot more in the presence and underscoring really helps create emotion, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 I think sometimes you're just not aware of it how much it's present there. But I loved the music; it was so beautiful and so orchestrated. And the underscoring, especially during the retelling of the story of Peter Pan, leading up to Sylvia's ultimate passing, was just oh. Yeah. Oh, if you ever need a good cry, you just put that on and... I mean, listen, I could watch the movie all the time to cry, so... I don't uh, know. The musical wrecked me, too. (laughs) And there were so many songs that stuck in your head. Play is the one that comes in my head all the time. Something About This Night, Neverland, Believe. I mean, all of these. All of these are amazing. Stronger... It's so beautiful. And it was magnificently performed, too. The The company was brilliant. The final thing I think we need to talk about is the choreography. Because there was choreography. Let's not forget That's it. And right. it was very clever choreography. Although it appears in my notes I've written cleave. <laughs> I should really spell check. But no, it was very clever. And we keep mentioning these two songs. But to me, these were the... Two of the biggest numbers for me that had great choreography, and that's Play and We Own the Night. Now, Play, we've talked about all the actors in the pub, and they're playing, and it's great, and they're going on the tables, and they're swinging, and they're dancing, and they're jumping. It was just so much fun. 
And if you didn't know what was coming, like it was the last moment that you were going to have like a really good time before the story turned around and just slapped you in the mouth and kicked you in the stomach. Right. You know, you after that song, you thought nothing could go wrong from here. We're having a great time. Like we're riding on a high. This is never going to end. And then it's like, surprise. This is a sad surprise, story. Surprise, surprise. Oh my gosh. And then the other one, Me on the Night, was when they were at the dinner party. Yes. And this is where we got to see this brilliant moment of between, uh, excuse me, between reality and what Jay and Barry's imagination is. Because this is where basically Jay and Barry is having his own aside. Right. But like it's like he kids, freezes time and the kids. But all the kids join in and they're all popping up from the table and then the servants get involved and they're all having a good time and they're messing with all the people, all the adults who are frozen. Silly. And then they come back together and all the adults are like, how did this happen? And all the kids are laughing, you know. But exactly, it's silly, but it was just so much fun. The choreography at the end of the day was fun. Yeah. And I'm so glad they didn't forget to incorporate that because ultimately it's a play. So I really love that. The show has had several notable performers, including Matthew Morrison, Laura Michelle Kelly, Kelsey Grammer, Till Wicks, Carolee Carmelo, Mark Kudish, Sandy Duncan, Terrence Mann, and Tony Yesman. Just take your time and please take mine. Talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history, starting with theatrical impact. For me, this was another beautiful Peter Pan affiliated story. I mean, Peter Pan has been a cornerstone of literary works and I think of theatrical works. We have a number of Peter Pan stories, including, of course, Peter Pan playing the musical. Also, the story of how Peter Pan came to be is now officially in the tones. Right, right. Well, and I think the the thing that I forget is that the creation of Peter Pan really did come about because of theater. Yes. And so I think to me, just knowing that its origin story comes from a place of theatrics has always made this way more in-depth for me as a story. And so to have it come together in a, a... how do I put it? Like in a in a fairy tale for adults, is kind of how I feel like Finding Neverland is. Yeah. It's a fairy tale to caution you um, as an adult to not forget about your child side. Don't be too serious. Yeah, it's that's... okay. You gotta. The world is serious enough. You don't right? have to be serious all the time. That's what, that kind of reminds me of my favorite quote that I love to live by, which is, "You should take your work seriously, but, but never, never yourself." yourself. I also thought the beautiful music was a a brilliant theatrical impact. I mean, those songs, Chef's Kiss. And and the other, for me, the only other theatrical impact was Sylvia's passing scene. It's it's one of the most beautiful I've ever seen. And I think that will forever be a huge theatrical impact. Whether it be just the brilliance of how they created that or that moment on its own. The moment that it exists. The... the fact that it exists. It's like is the impactful. chandelier that falls in Phantom or the, the turntable name is or Elphaba flying. That moment is right up there. It is stunning, babes. 
So, shall we move on to societal impact? Yes. This I... one didn't have as many societal impacts, in my opinion. But the yeah. main one for me is it attracted a different kind of audience to the theater with its casting choices as well as its popular film association. So, using those two things, I think it drew in a different audience who wanted to come see that, who may not come see... Wicked to the Thoroughly Modern Millies or the Pippins. But they'll see, oh, I know that film, or oh, I know that actor. I want to go see that. One of the things that I find really interesting is how they went about releasing the cast album at the time. Because remember this, after we saw this, we were like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for a cast album. I can't wait. And they released it and it wasn't the the first version of the cast album wasn't the... It was like a... Oh my god, what did they call it? It was a... Like, people were singing the songs, but it wasn't in context of the show. Oh, so it's like Hamilton remixed. Kind of, except for they, they brought out the that version first. Where yeah, it was so like, like when Jennifer oh, Hudson gonna... sang Neverland of the Tonys, they had different people that were just singing. It's almost like showcasing. Yes, they showcased the songs... It wasn't like a traditional part, cast album. It wasn't album. part of the cast and album. And I remember right, right. everyone was so, or at least, you know, everyone that I knew was so upset that they were like, why, why is it not the cast album? And so then I believe they did go on to... Yes, there is a cast album. Yes. Yes. And so it just, it, it it's kind of it's interesting that the cast album we didn't get until... After. Until it was going out on tour and the show was closing on Broadway. Well, and it's uh, th- that's an interesting, maybe, marketing tool because I'm sure the people... I mean, Je- like I said, Jennifer Hudson was the one that sang Neverland at the Tonys the year before to generate hype around this. There were a lot of big names producing the show. So it might have been a way to hedge their bets. Who knows? Right. But I think, really, the only societal impact was, again, bringing those people that don't normally go to the theater to the theater. Right, so I think then that leads us into the question of, is this show still relevant? So Jay and Barry and the story of Peter Pan are a timeless and always relevant tale, in my opinion. And to tack on to that, Peter Pan is back on tour, and they have revamped it because, of course, we had the Indian problem, among other things, in that show. But they've revamped it. The show is brilliant for colleges and regional theaters. It might be a little out of touch or out of reach for community just because of the budget needs. But, but also, it, it could work in the, with the right inspiration. Like, it, it, it's not, you don't have to have a big budget to do it. You know. Right. I'm thinking of community theaters like back home in Salt Lake Hale Center Theater. Yeah, they'll, they'll do fine. As for Broadway, with its gorgeous and moving score and story, I would say it could absolutely play on Broadway, hands down. But being that it would be a revival, I think a few more years need to pass before a new artistic team gets its hands on this work and rediscovers it to present for audiences. Right. I think that the next place I'd like to see this go is to explore with explore audience participation like an immersive yes that would be interesting but i think we need to be in a place societally in a couple more years before we can go into that road well we need the right team to come together to create that experience maybe they're not old enough yet maybe they're still in school they're still out there and we need to get them to the theater (laughs) but for me this is this is definitely a yes as in relevant i think this is 
definitely, yeah, this is relevant for me too. Just take a little, I'll burn the light. My life is in your hands, and I'll never want the fire to stop. to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show three times. Once in Salt Lake at the Eccles Theater in 2018 and then twice on Broadway in 2015 and 2016. I just have a couple of memories to share. I mean, the first one, obviously, I cried at every single show. And I mean, I'm horrible. I knew where it was. I knew what was coming. I knew exactly what was coming after play, and then something about this night. I knew exactly what was coming, and still, I was a wreck. I just I couldn't hold it back. But I mean, it was so beautiful. It, oh god! Even so I love you're that. still misty eyed. Don't you judge me, Judy. <laughs> I remember meeting the cast afterwards, which was amazing, including Kelsey Grammer, who's very nice, and Carolee Carmelo. Who a lot? I mean, the woman is astounding. She's she's one of those great character actresses that you I guarantee you've seen, and she's been in a million shows that you're like, oh, I didn't know that. She most recently was in Bad Cinderella. She was the stepmother, and before that, she was in 1776 as uh, the uh, senator from Pennsylvania, who I the name is leaving me right now, but. She is just amazing, and she was so nice. She has just wonderful energy. The other person I want to mention about meeting is Tony Yazbek. Tony Yazbek is a phenomenal actor. For me, Tony Yazbek was the best Jay and Barry that we saw of the three performances. He was incredible. He was he was brilliant. I loved I loved his embodiment of the character. Yeah, getting to see him. So that was our and second time. And he's a time. phenomenal dancer. Oh, an American in Paris was out of this world. But getting to see him, this was the second time, 2016, getting to see him in this role, he broke my heart even more. I mean, he got me on Neverland the first time when he and Sylvia are singing. And he is so nice and just humble. He, When he did the kiss and cry line, he, he took the time to speak to people. He's just so wonderful. And I am so happy to see all the success he is seeing. It makes me happy because good people like that deserve success. So I continue to wish him all the success. And if you listen, Tony Asbeck, thank you so much for your amazing performance and your kindness at the stage door. You'll be able to catch Finding Neverland at a theater near you, I'm sure, sometime soon. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And... Keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town met in a foreign land. 
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by The Copy Cuts and Billy Murray. Oh,